Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Petko Stoyanov and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here with my co-host, Petko Stoyanov. Petko, how was your Thanksgiving? Great. Thanks, Rachel. It was great to disconnect and see family and at the same time get some quiet time. And I'm hoping, you know, back to work now because I kind of miss work after being with family. I think all of us. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to say the same because my family listens. So I am excited to welcome today a fabulous guest. Uh, We have joining us uh, John Zangardi. He is president and CEO of Red Horse Corporation. And and John, I want to say you've been on the podcast before. How long has it been? Oh, well over two and a half years, Rachel. That's what I thought. I'm, I'm happy to be back again and contribute. So excited to have you back. And you have such a wonderful career and background, John. I would love for our listeners to, you know, kind of get a refresher on just how long you've been on the front lines of security and, and in the trenches and and have really had a front row seat to what's going on in government and defense and elsewhere. Yeah, well, it's it's really the personification of the Peter principle, Rachel. <laughs> Eventually, you stumble up enough if you survive. Yeah, I, I've been around for a long time. I mean, and, and you know, if you look at a career, it, it takes a lot of different tracks. Uh, way back when, I majored in accounting in college. Whoever thought I'd be flying P3s and chasing Soviet subs around the Pacific? <laughs> and how would I ever have predicted that I would have gone from, you know, working the naval aviation budget when I was on active duty to being an SCS working the IT budget, that transition wasn't really based upon any IT experience. I mean, clearly you have a technical skill and maybe later we could talk about veterans getting into cybersecurity, but you know, it was really based upon my budgetary expertise. And I became in charge of the IT and meteorological and oceanographic and space and all those kinds of budgets for the Navy and then rolled up to be wow. the head of acquisition for those areas as DAS and C4I. Did time as the Navy CIO, then fleeted up to be uh, the principal deputy DOD CIO and acting CIO before converting over to DHS to be their wow. CIO as a uh, political. So, you know, it's 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 kind of um, things happen if you work hard and you persevere. Mm-hmm. Things come your way. People, you know, give you a break, and then it's up to you to go in there and make the difference and and, and make them feel good about why they picked you. So. I think a lot of it was just being in the right place at the right time and open, being open to new challenges. I mean, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Do you really think I knew anything about IT coming from naval aviation? Maybe a little, but yeah, a lot. And that's part of you know what what I think separates wheat from chaff is that willingness and discipline to learn. Hundred percent. Yeah, and and of all the all the roles you've had, I. Not that not that we like to call out favorites, but surely was was there one that just got you the the most excited or, you know, when you look back, you're like that. It, that was the one that kind of marked a really great milestone in your career. I mean, they all sound like milestone opportunities, though. Like, how could you choose one? Well, it, it yeah, they were all fun and I enjoyed them all. And uh I would tell you, and that's and you won't like this answer, maybe my favorite was being a lieutenant in a squadron and part of a warder. But to really answer your question, I think the most interesting, most compelling was DHS CIO. And, and, and let me explain why. 
Um, you know, DOD is this huge organization. Navy is a huge organization in and of itself. And the roles, when you become that senior, you really don't have your hands on the levers. And, and, and trying to make progress really requires moving a lot of senior people and their staffs to, you know, a, a new area. And, and that right. takes a lot of effort. And it's it's different than when I got to DHSCIO. It's smaller. It's not the same size network. But they're organized differently. And I came to appreciate, you know, as the CIO, you have people, you have cyber, you have operations, you have policy, you have money, you're doing it all, right? The only thing you don't have is contracting, right? But still, you have your hands on the lever and you can make things happen much more quickly than you can in DOD or the Navy or any of the services. Not that I'm trying to discourage people from taking those roles, because those roles are absolutely essential. It just requires more effort to move the ball down the field, right? It's just harder when, for example, when I was the Navy CIO or even running Navy acquisition and IT, the number of three-star staffs you have to coordinate with to do anything, it takes a lot of effort. And, right. you know, that's just part of the game. But that's what made DHS CIO rewarding is that you make an action and in a relatively short period of time, you can go, huh, wow, I can see the results. That's cool. It's very unusual coming from DOD to have that kind of response and feeling. So, so John, I guess you could say you like being the tip of the spear. I love doing mission stuff. And, and for, for people who leave government, and, you know, I talk to a lot of my friends. The one thing we truly, truly miss is mission and right tip of the spear. The one thing we truly, truly don't miss is the number of meetings and bureaucracy. I guess that's two things. And because, you know, when I look at my schedule, you know, being out here in the commercial world, I have time to think. Being in the government world, wow, it's just like, so you start meetings at seven o'clock and you finish up meetings somewhere around five. That's a long day. So I applaud and really thank everyone who is in government pulling those shifts for what they do. I know rowing that boat ain't easy. <laughs> now, government, I mean, DOD just released something really interesting. They released their zero trust strategy for DOD. I'd love to get your perspective. I mean, you were, like you said, tip of the spear, doing everywhere from cyber technology to cloud computing, identity, and telecom. I'd love to get your perspective on the, the DOD's recent strategy for zero trust. Yeah. So, so first off, uh, I think it's important to note that the threat environment from when I was in, say, DOD or Navy has really changed. I mean, we went through COVID and, and COVID brought with us a proliferation of endpoints and people working from wherever, um, probably places we don't want them to work for. We have the Russia invasion of uh, Ukraine, which is, you know, a complexity and, and China and how they view Taiwan and all that's going on in the world with these threats. I really think it's a more complicated and dangerous world from when I was there in terms of cybersecurity and all of that stuff. It, it really, to me, it points to the need, the necessity to move to zero trust. And I applaud the Biden administration and their EO on zero trust, putting it out there, the work that CIS is doing, and also the work that DOD CIO is doing. You know, Randy Vesnick, John Sherman have gone out of their way to take this boulder called zero trust and, and roll it up figurative hill to get a strategy out on the street. 
Um, for those of you who've never been in government, you can imagine all the people they had to coordinate with inside of government. And I know they did outreach to, you know, industry, the cloud service providers or CSPs, for example. That, that's a lot, man. That's a lot to, to carry up a hill. So it isn't a light lift. And, but more importantly, the world is heading towards a zero trust kind of view. And the fact that they're doing is, is really getting on board with where the administration's going and where industry, I think, is going probably at a much more rapid pace. Um, the NSTAC, the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, put out a report in February of 22. And I, I think, you know, if you were to look at the DOD strategy, and I did this past weekend to refresh myself, you know, the strategic emphasis that um, DOD is putting on the move to zero trust aligns with that. Uh, the recognition of industry best practices, they picked up on that. Uh, they recognize that what they have to put in place has to be enduring, that the risk is that, well, it'll be incomplete, you know, because it is a 2027 effort, but, you know, getting something enduring in there is important. And they talk about culture and institutionalizing it. And while, while we're not talking budget here, uh, let me make a, a really e interesting point. Um, one of the things I did when I did the, the Navy budget is, you know, it's like, how do I convey to uh, people who look at IT who are warfighters who are used to planes and ships and missiles that there's something here that you need to look at differently, that it's not a completely fungible asset. So in the Navy, there is a slash plan for the shipbuilding plan that covers the fit. There is a slash plan for how we procure aircraft and missiles and weapons and all that stuff. So I created a slash plan for and two and six, you know, information dominance. And there's just small things like saying, hey, in, in this fiscal year, we plan on procuring X number of Kane systems, consolidated float network enterprise systems for ships, or things like that to give people a sense that if you reduce the budget, you're going to lose some number of these things. And that means there will be less modernized information technology in place out there. Um, that is really something that's difficult in the building to convey to people. I mean, come on, IT is hard to, to put your arms around if you haven't dealt with it your whole career. It's much easier to go, I know what a plane looks like and I can understand what it does. And if you take that plane away, I could do less of whatever it is, so. So, so John, I, I wanna step back on the zero trust piece because I'm kind of, I mean, I've, I glanced at it over the weekend as well. and. I'd love to get your perspective of how the DOD zero trust is the same or different from your perspective on what you view as zero trust. Interesting question. Um, the challenge that DOD has is there's 4.5 million users on their network. The other challenge they have is legacy weapon systems. You know, when I was at DHS, I didn't have to really deal with legacy weapon systems. Uh, and how you implement that to ensure that things like JADC2, you know, Joint All Domain Command and Control can be done is, is really a big difference from what anyone in industry has to do, the magnitude, the scale. So let me try to break this down. Uh, I'm trying to convey a sense of complexity, Petco, that uh, most people in industry would never have to face. So in a network that big, uh, run by so many different organizations with weapon systems that have to interconnect and a focus on mission. As you move forward on putting in place zero trust, 
how do you make sure that as you put it in a, an identity-based perimeter in place that you ensure that workflows are not uh, compromised or locked out where people can't get into things. So that might have a, an actual mission implication or it might have an implication in terms of how you move things forward with different programs and stuff in the building. So that will create confusion that could also engender negative feelings about zero trust if it's not done right in a very complex environment. So from a technical point of view, I think it's important to make sure they get that right so productivity can continue. Um, I also think that because this is a big difference from when I was in government, we were moving to the cloud and we were moving smartly. I was one of the signatures on FedRAMP. I really understand that piece, but the amount of data and information that has moved out to commercial cloud service providers is more than when I was in government. And I know DODCL is gonna work very closely with the CSPs and in industry, but hey, that's a major dependency that we have to get right. That's a huge complexity given the scale of what they have to deal with to make sure there's connection secure and that the data and information that's in that CSP is managed properly. But more importantly, they have to make sure they get to something that I consider, or maybe you would consider, cloud agnostic. So you just don't want to have something that's so proprietary that it ties their hands in the future. The other complexity here is, hey, we've got this thing called the defense industrial base. And, you know, um, how do we bring them along? Not the easiest thing. I think if you were to look at a lot of Chinese military hardware, you might go, wow, that looks just like pick your US, you know, high tech uh, war fighting machine and bingo, you got it. But there's also our NATO and coalition partners um, having served, you know, uh, as a representative to NATO on their C3 board, you know, the US is well-funded compared to a lot of our NATO partners. But we have to work with our NATO partners in, in a time of conflict. And how do we ensure that we're not rushing ahead of those countries, but we're bringing those countries along? And again, another major complexity. DOD also has something called you know, legacy systems. And I'm sure industry and others have legacy systems, but there's a scale out there. And some of those legacy systems are embedded in weapon systems. And, and how do you deal with that in the future? And to read the strategy, there is a waiver process in place in the strategy. And it's essentially, you gotta have a waiver process to, 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 to allow things to move forward. But you know, two or three years from now, and I'll get to this point in a little bit, if the culture on zero trust is not embedded, how will the decision on fixing or upgrading or modernizing a legacy system be balanced against not? That's really going to be a key thing, you know, two, three years from now where, hey, this is, this is going to be measured against, right? But the culture piece is really important. I talked a little bit in an earlier answer about, you know, how warfighters are more accustomed or more comfortable in the purchase of major weapon system planes, ships, and all that. How will they understand zero trust? And one thing I need to applaud DOD CIO is they've worked with DAU, the Acquisition University, to start building, I guess, I'll call it 101 because I haven't seen the course material, but information on zero trust and why it's important is part of the training of future acquisition professions, right? If you're a PM, you make trade-offs all the time about cost schedule performance and not really understanding zero trust, not having a firm grasp on it might lead a program manager to make a decision that isn't optimal. 
Right. So to me, those are some of the major questions that I think have to be answered as they move forward. And, and Paco, to your point, I think that's how it differs from anything in industry. Now, John, you've been part of government for a while and uh, I've been part of it. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I remember when before cyber, it used to be called IT security and other things. And eventually everything just became cyber. Is everything just going to be rebudgeted as just zero trust? Or is this going to be real zero trust? Um, that's a great question. And, and, you know, the fact is, I, I don't think everything will be rebranded as zero trust. But there, there will be uh, people who uh, exhibit opportunistic behavior and rebrand whatever it is they're doing as zero trust to protect it. And that kind of comes back to that knowledge base, I think, that has to be uh, built where people can recognize when they query a, a program or effort or something hey, is that really zero trust or is that just something that might be uh, information assurance based, whatever, that you're rebranding as zero trust. That's a danger and a risk that people will always do. Um, I've seen the behavior, uh, rebranding is a way to protect my money so I can keep moving this thing forward, whatever it is. So yeah, um, I guess like you, um, to say I've never done that in my career would be a lie. <laughs> But the fact is, um, enterprise behavior, and that's really what we're talking about here, is, is getting everyone aligned to where the enterprise is going. So I think DOD Seattle has set the goals within all that with their, their strategic vision. But getting that into people's minds and hearts is important. And, and let me give you an example from back when I was in the Navy uh, working acquisition. Um, DOD, CIO wanted to move the Navy to uh, DEE, DISA Enterprise Email. Well, we were under the NMCI contract, and, and I know I've seen the NMCI sucks bumper stickers. So, but NMCI. What does NMCI stand for? John, John, what does NMCI Navy, stand Navy for? Marine, uh, Navy Marine Corps Internet. Okay, the bumper sticker I saw said something else. Got it. What does it say? NJET sucks? No, it said no email comes in. Uh, I haven't seen that one pick up, but I'm sure it's the same thing. But but the rates for our email system were substantially less than the rates for this enterprise email. And the argument came down to, okay, so if we pay these, you know, X millions of dollars more, what do we get for it? Well, there were mitigations that would allow us to still exercise our gal and everything just like DOD wanted us to do. There was some lost capability, but at the end of the day, you could very easily make the case that I cannot buy one trainer jet. And that argument was really simple and compelling. It gets back to the numbers case. You know, hey, you could you could you could do about 85, 90% of, of the mission that they're demanding, and well. Right. To get to 100 percent, it's going to cost you a trainer jet. Is that worth it? That's a decision that executives can make and should make. But that gives you a sense of the complexity of these things. By the way, uh, we didn't go to this enterprise email. Um, we, we bought the plane. I mean, it's kind of it, it reminds you of the size of government when your choices are, do I upgrade my IT or do I buy another airplane? I mean, that just gives you the or or a carrier ship even you know it's sometimes right. yeah it's 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 these are challenging decisions and 
that's why I'm always very careful when we talk about these things is I, I recognize that there are great people working in, in government who are faced with some really challenging scenarios, whether it's complying with law, competing priorities on how to you know, support a different mission. These are hard decisions. And I, you know, I think they make them as best they can. And I hope that when I was there, I made them as uh, well as I could too. Yeah. And John, I mean, having read the zero trust strategy and even talked to Gartner and other analysts, I mean, there's definitely a lot of elements of technology we have today that just need to be connected in a different way. So, you know, if, if you have a government individual that is, you know, forward seek, seeing and can say, you know, the things I have today do make sense. We just have to add 10 percent change, you know. So it's not that zero trust requires massive changes to your infrastructure. It's just a, a culture change of how we connect everything. I agree. And, and you know, I remember, I forget if it was 2016 or 17, I started talking about zero trust. And that's when I started looking into it and learning it. Um, I moved to DHS. And after getting my feet on the ground, I had my CTO kind of set up. Well, let's do some pilots. Let's, let's figure out what this can do for us. And, and you're, you're exactly right. We, we tackled the first thing we tackled was ensuring that our budget process, the spreadsheets that you know the CFO shop worked on, we we knew we 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 wanted to implement zero trust around that to protect your pre-decisional budgets, which everyone would love to get their hands on. I'm sure at industry, but I would too. Um, but you know, taking the time to do that, the recognition here was well, we really didn't have to buy anything new. We really didn't have to. All we had to do was really work on those workflows, understand those workflows, and then implement the right things, right, for folks to have access who needed access and folks who didn't need access to not have access. So there's a complexity there. Uh, and it took some time. You know, each one of these is, is not going to be fast. So the timeline that you see in the strategy of 2027 seems like a very long time. It is. But across a 4.5 million person network with all the pieces and parts, I can't imagine them going much faster. John, I'm curious, you were, now you were in DHS and DOD. Now, the zero trust for DOD is when they got released. How do you see DHS leveraging it or creating their own in terms of zero trust? Are they already doing zero trust just a little bit differently? Yeah, they're doing some elements there. Um, what's interesting and in, in, uh, I found at DHS is that there's a great connection between DOD and DHS. Uh, in fact, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but the CISO at DHS, Ken Bible, used to be in the Marine Corps, basically, as their deputy C4. Um, so that connection's tight. Uh, and I, I, I think it will be maintained. Uh, in fact, a lot of people have migrated back and forth over the years. The acting undersecretary for management is a retired two-star Marine. So those connections, oh, by the way, back when I was there, Chip Fulgham was the uh, CFO in USM. He was an Air Force officer. Claire Grady was uh, the USM. She came out of DPAP. So those connections, oh, I'm forgetting, Elaine Duke was there as the deputy secretary. So those connections, I think, are there. They're well-placed. Um, if you look around DHS, you see all of that throughout the organization. And folks from DHS have moved over to DOD without getting into all the names. But I think there is a good cross-pollination. And to take it to another level, when, when you look at FedRAMP and the JAB, I think it's called the Joint Architectural Board. And you could correct me if I got that acronym 
wrong. Authorization but, board, but you know. thank you. I couldn't pull it out of my brain, but you know, I, I signed off on a lot of FedRAMP approvals while I was there. But there are three signatures required: GSA CIO, DOD CIO, and the DHS CIO, right? And that forces you to work together on FedRAMP authorizations, which you know starts aligning naturally security and how you look at different things. So, so I'm glad to hear there's alignment potential. So this could be all the DOD zero trust capabilities could eventually be overlapped and shown by DHS and we'll see cross pollination back and forth. Do we need to do any additional education on the workforce to make this real across government? Um, I think you do. And I hinted at that, that I think it's great that DAU's picking that up, but I think, it, I think it needs to go a little bit more deeper into the organizations. I mean, if you're, uh, Customs and Border Protection law enforcement officer working on the border, you might go, why? Um, but I think it's important that they understand that there are some things that will change how they do business and what they have access to and all that. So I think there's an education piece that has to percolate down further. You could take that example and apply it to you know a Navy sailor or an Air Force airman or whatever. So I don't think they have to have a full and complete understanding of zero trust, but I think they should understand why it's there, what it does, and why there are some limitations placed on you. I mean, think about it. So the, the, the fundamental of zero trust is I don't trust you. How does that sound for an organization that, that you know, warfighters, they're a team, they collaborate, but I, I still don't trust you with IT. I mean, it, there is a little cognitive dissonance there that, 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 might strike some people as odd, but you know I think it's very explainable, and, and I think as people are exposed to it, and given the right approach, they go, "Oh yeah, I understand this, and I'm not going to push back. It makes sense." And where they bump into walls where they can't get the data they need, they have to have a very clear understanding of, "Hey, how do I get access to that data if I really think I need it?" So those pathways have to be created too. Yeah. It's it's kind of funny when you think about trust. We always we make it a people connection, and it. You know, when we first meet someone, we take a little bit of time to vet them. But in in IT, trust is actually a weakness because in IT, at least in corporate systems, in IT systems, having trust on the BIOS, having trust in the hardware, you automatically assume it's going to work. But if there's something embedded there that you trust automatically, that becomes a weakness then that someone can exploit. So I think zero trust is really about making assumptions where we have to trust, we have to assume not to trust and we have to verify afterwards. So it's really about reducing weaknesses in government and reducing weaknesses in IT systems. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm just creating a case here where it could sound like that too. But 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 let me let me take a second here and, and, trend, and regress all the way back to my dissertation where I, uh, I spent a lot of time working with a, a concept called spontaneous uh, ordering. Um, and requires a lot of understanding of things like prisoners dilemmas but when you think of trust and if you were to create a an equation for trust really all it comes down to is the probability of defection right if i believe that you're going to defect and when then i know not to trust you but trust is really based upon i don't think you'll ever defect and that's really all you're establishing with zero trust i've, I've verified your identity i've given you the things that you have access to Right. And, and the probability of that being a wrong choice is very low. So trust is established. 
I don't know. I'm making a stretch there, Petco, and you could you could shoot a couple bullets in that and put that <laughs> well, puppy down. But I, I do I'm think a there's math a geek, so I love this stuff. Yeah, I'm a math geek, so I love the you know prisoner's dilemma, and I had to think about that. I don't have a strong opinion either way. I, I was just thinking from the standpoint of IT systems and everything. You know, we're all dependent on each other in this global economy now. So I think it's really about understanding where our IT systems are, what they're using, and controlling who has access to it and when and where. Eventually, zero trust comes down to people. Yeah. Speaking of people, um, I have to ask this question because I keep hearing in industry, and I think we've all heard it. There's like currently what 3.4 million in terms of shortage out there in cyber alone. Um, I think that I don't know if that's in the U.S. or global, but I imagine in the just in government, you've got shortages there. Outside of government, I mean, there's should we what should we be doing regarding that shortage? I mean, what are you, you've been in government and industry? I mean. Is there something industry should be doing? Is there something government should be doing regarding the IT shortage or of cyber professionals? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's some things they should be doing. So let, let's start on the one end where people leave government to go to industry. Um, so you ingest someone, that person may be qualified, minimally qualified or not qualified, and you get them a security clearance, you maybe get them a couple certifications, you train the person, you give them a couple of years of experience, that's really valuable stuff. Maybe they get a promotion, but you know, at the end of the day, they're underpaid uh, compared to their industry counterparts. And, and I remember my last year in DHS, I, I remember losing three um, really good people out of our CISO shop uh, to industry. And I talked to each of them for what it's worth. And they really didn't want to go. It came back to what I said earlier in the interview, that mission piece is like, wow, that is so compelling. And people love it. But it was the salary. They go, how do I go home to my spouse and say, you know, there's a lot of money here. How do I turn it down? We're not talking one or two thousand dollars here. We're talking significant amounts of money that can make a, a, a sizable difference in their life. Maybe sending their kids to a private school, buying a car, paying off student loan debt, whatever house, whatever it is. And, and we lost these people for that. And they took significant raises. Now, I hope someday they will go back into government and take some of that industry experience and bring it in there. So that's one side of the equation. And I think, you know, Congress and government have to do something to raise compensation for people and skill sets that we think are fundamentally important to the security, cybersecurity of our nation. And that would create inequities across, you know, hey, this HR person or this finance person is making so much less than this cyber thing. That's an unusual mindset for government, but more on the ingest side, there's so many veterans out there that should be brought into cybersecurity. And, I, and I, I am not speaking for myself here because my wife would say I am not trainable. Uh, and she has a couple decades of experience there, but the average military uh, veteran is, they have a strong desire to learn. They have a great work ethic. Uh, they have discipline. They, they understand how to solve problems. They have a mission focus. They really have that desire to serve. I mean, I think they handle stress well in general. So when, when you look at those factors, right, they, they become really compelling. Oh, and they, they may even have a security clearance. And oh, maybe they even have some technical skills that I can leverage that, right, they can bridge into it, right? So those factors really make it important. So having the training programs and stuff to bring them in is important. But I think there's another piece to it. You know, it's very easy for a person who say 
maybe majored in history or psychology to go to even get them to look at cyber discrimination, for them to understand that they could make that transition. Uh, my my CISO, I said my second CISO at DHS, his college major was psychology. He was great. That wasn't a detriment to it. He had the traits I was talking about, work ethic, desire to learn. He had the ability to solve problems that were complicated. He understood the threat and he could analyze it. So he was focused on the mission. So you know, having a non-technical college degree should not be a barrier. Uh, not having a strong math background should not necessarily be a barrier to getting into a cybersecurity position. If you really, if you really get down to it, the math hurdle, in my view, is low for a lot of the positions. It might require looking at graphs or some data analysis, but the soft skills that people get in the military in terms of policy development, security awareness, governance, all of those things really play to this thing. So I think some of it is getting out the message, right? That, hey, any of you guys could do it or gals, and then giving them the path that helps them there is, is great. Um, look, at like I said at the beginning of this, my, my wife would tell you I'm not trainable, but clearly I am at some minimal level to get into it. So even anyone could do this if they have the right background and want, desire to succeed in it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I will tell you, having got an engineering degree, the one thing I learned is how to solve problems. And that doesn't always have to be, you don't need a math degree, you don't need an engineering degree to do it. But if you're a person who likes to solve problems and you major in, what was, Rachel, what was that person we had recently on the podcast? Oh, he had a PhD in medieval history. Wow. That's a, that's a unique uh, degree. But, but Pekka, let me put a, a little different spin on that. Um, so when I was in Navy acquisition, I was on a lot of uh, boards to select program managers and deputy program managers and all those sorts of people. And, and what I saw over the course of time was that, no offense to you, Pekka, that some of the better PMs and DPMs did not have an engineering degree. <laughs> You know what? They're better at the money. We just count the widgets, right? We just we, we overanalyze. I think that's the dilemma you have sometimes being in engineering is you overanalyze. Exactly. So paralysis by analysis, right? No, it, yep. it's. I think what you're pointing out, John, is we need a diverse um, workforce yes. in cyber. Yes. If we hire just people who know how to use a hammer, they're going to go in there assuming everything needs to be hammered. And sometimes the solution is we need a soft touch and we need someone that looks at solving the problem differently and not always, you know, and we, and it's, again, if we have a shortage of that many people, we do need to be looking outside. We need to be looking at training them. We need to look at different ways of testing. That's not technical, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, let me try to make a, a little different point. On that. So I did a 25 year in, in the military flying P3s. And when I started flying P3s, the threat was the Soviets and, we had to learn how to track Soviet subs, which meant learning oceanographics, acoustics, right? We had, a, we had to get di a, a different technical skill under our belt. How does sound, tran sound transmit through water, right? Okay, as I went through my career, the, the mission of the P3 changed and it started focusing more on intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance. Uh, I learned that too. Uh, we put in, you know, ISAR, reverse synthetic aperture radars, we upgraded our electro optics, you know, different skill set, different technical stuff, but people can learn, right? Yeah. 
I mean, definitely. I think that that's people can learn is an important thing. And yeah. we've got to stop saying there's a shortage and just saying people can learn and move them into those roles and give them opportunities uh, to in order to help implement the DOD zero trust capabilities roadmap by 2017, 2027. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're a little behind. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, when you're acting CIO, it was 2017. So, or, you know, you it's been it's we've had a lot of change in government i mean i feel like we're just beginning and there's going to be even more change and the only thing constant in government only thing constant in industry only thing constant in cyber is change can you think of a more dynamic environment than it and cyber no no honestly i can't Mm -hmm. so weather maybe weather maybe (laughs) maybe maybe okay i'll go with that weather's more as long as, they, as long as it doesn't snow, I'm happy. I mean, we have, I, I mean, we have micro, you know, climates in certain area where just in that one street might snow while street over might not. And hopefully that's my street. <laughs> hey, John, I got a question for you. We've talked yeah. a lot about the DOD Zero Trust and people. I'd love to get your take on what are you reading now? Like what book? Well, I, I eschew anything that has to deal with management training. I, I won't read anything they say the same thing over and over and over. Uh, and I think you actually get better leadership training thoughts from things that have nothing to do with it. I don't read fiction. I'm a nonfiction guy. Uh, I'm finishing up a book called Cobblestones. It's it's about uh, Italian immigrants and you know going back to the old country, right? So it's a generational thing. And it applies to all immigrant stories, like even my family, because we are Italian. But in this particular book, it's about the story of this man who and his wife who live a small, leave a small town called Cassano in the Abruzzo region of Italy and how they came to America and how they didn't speak English or even have it beyond a fifth grade education and how he turned into a multimillionaire. But during this journey, his whose son was writing the book, his son was like getting all this wisdom from his dad growing up. And I recall all of those things from my dad, but it wasn't until he got to his 50s that he truly understand the wisdom of his dad. And it really boils down to really simple things that I capture from the book. Hey, you could do anything. Uh, you put your mind to it, you can succeed, right? It's don't be afraid of taking that risk and doing it. Um, I'm also reading a book from Eric Metaxas, who's one of my favorite authors. I finished it up about a week ago, Letters to you know American Churches. And uh, before that, I finished up Confidence Man, uh, which was really a well-researched, uh, detailed book. So those are the three most recent books that I'm reading. Uh, all good reads, really good reads. Any movies you should check out, John, while we're getting uh, book reviews? And- <laughs> that's, that's an easy one. you got to go see Devotion, man. It's got all the right elements. Naval aviators, action, and heart. How can you beat that? Awesome. Can't. Okay. Well, this has been wonderful, John. I really appreciate your time and and sharing all these wonderful insights and from your time, I mean, literally in the belly of the beast. Um, and it's it's such a an interesting dynamic path ahead for us. And and I'm always kind of curious as we kind of look to close our our time today. But um, do you have optimism for the cyber path ahead? Are we going to ever get ahead of this threat, or at least even get neck and neck with it, or? Or what do you see in the next, I don't know, 5, 10, 20 years? 
Well, I've never been good at prognosticating that far into the future, but your question is, am I optimistic? Yeah, I think we're seeing the right actions out of the Biden administration, out of DODCIO, out of CISO, out of the CIOs and what they're talking about. We're seeing the right actions in industry. There's a lot out there um, that that I think people need to pull in to their mindset. Um, I want to make one quick statement. You know, I serve on a couple of boards. And I'm, we established on one company's board, a cybersecurity subcommittee. And the willingness of that company to set up that cybersecurity subcommittee, which I think is the right place to put it under audit and risk, because it's all about risk, really starts going to the, the fact that people are beginning to internalize this risk and how you know critical it is for their business to understand that risk and put in place the right things to mitigate that risk. And what's interesting is I watch this evolution as leaders it, it, where I'm involved at least seem to understand that you can't completely eradicate risk. That risk will always be there, but what have you done to min- mitigate it? Right. And do you understand the probability of it occurring and the consequence of it happening? What does it do? And, and people are beginning to take that on in a way that's really important. When I was in DHS and DOD, we had to talk about a particular vulnerability or whatever. It was really about expressing it in mission terms, right? If you start talking IT jargon, you lose people immediately. But if you start talking about, well, if this system goes down, the airport in LaGuardia is going to shut down and the TSA lines are going to go out the door and you'll be on national media. So understanding risk in terms of that mission piece really kind of gets people to understand it better. I'm optimistic. I love it. I love it. (laughs) All right. Well, to all of our listeners, thanks again for joining us. Um, Another great, great discussion with John Zangardi. Thank you so much, John, for for coming back to talk to us again. This has been really a pleasure. Hey, great to see you, Rachel. Thank you, Petco. Always good to see you guys. Fantastic. So to all our listeners, until next time, be safe. Thanks for joining us for the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. 